0: not there damn damn oh oh sorry sorry you caught me you caught me a bit off guard there um i was just i was just reading the morning obituaries and looking for a couple people i was hoping would be on there damn oh well oh well good morning good afternoon good evening and willkommen Welcome, hello, V-Gates, Shalom, Buena Sera, Buena Noche, and all those other good things. It is, the way it is, the official Bobby Galinsky podcast. I wonder if there's an unofficial Bobby Galinsky podcast. If you ever hear of one, please let me know. I'll get my people on that right away. My crack Mossad team, we'll take them out. We'll give them a cup of tea cup of Vladimir Putin's tea. Um, The same tea I sent Nancy Pelosi for her birthday. Just kidding. I wouldn't pay the postage. But she was on that list I was looking for. That's how I start my day. I love looking at the news and seeing who's come and who's gone. And um, we did lose a fantastic talent this week. As most of you would know Chad, Chadwick Bozeman the actor what I'll be talking about later in the program because there's some interesting things about his secrets that uh, and not casting any aspersions absolutely love the guy as an actor that just um that just don't click with me in Hollywood and uh, we're going to talk about that This is episode 24 24. Jack Bauer, 24, Jack Bauer. That's a show that I never really got into. My, my son, Steve, loved 24. Um, I like Keith R. Sutherland a lot, as some of you know. Um, got to meet him many years ago, back in the Flatliner days, like in 1989, 1990, when we were all young. And um, he's aged. I think um, I haven't aged as bad, but uh, he's 13 years younger. So he's got an advantage on me. Um, And we're talking about the original Flatliners there, the 1990 film directed by the amazing, recently passed Joel Schumacher. Not that absolute piece of doggy poo that was uh, the remake a couple years ago, which regrettably did have Kiefer Sutherland in a small role there, but uh, that film should be, you know, clipped up into mandolin picks and then and then burned at the stake. Burned! Burned! Um, why remake stuff like that? Why remake something that's nigh on perfect? Who knows? We saw a pretty perfect film this week. My wife and I caught uh, on Foxtel Knives Out, which had slipped past me in the theater this past year with uh, Daniel Craig and... Um, Jamie Lee Curtis looking mean, like herself, and uh, fantastic story. Kind of an Agatha Christie, you know, whodunit, you know, Ten Little Indians, Murder on the Orient Express, but very camp and very, very groovy. In a way, it kind of reminded me of In Bruges, which is one of my 25 top films with Colin Farrell. And, uh, but it's a, it's a fantastic whodunit. It's very clever. But let's get down to business here. Um, You already know my morning routine, now check the news, check the obituaries, smile, laugh, guffaw, be disappointed, whatever Have that morning walk, have some nice healthy food And um, especially get excited when uh, we're doing the podcast because there's so much to talk about And what will we be talking about today? We're going to be talking about good things and bad things. We're going to revisit the Republican and Democratic National Conventions from uh, what will have been two weeks uh, for the demos and last week for the Republicans, just to touch on a couple of things. You've probably been absolutely inundated, and I really don't want to go too political. In fact, I'm actually going to probably go a bit light on the politics over the next, oh, six to seven weeks as things just go crazy. I mean, I'm going to be over it, you'll be over it, and then just before the election, I'm gonna just go berserk. But uh, there's a couple of things that you should know, and then you can uh, use that information. I'm going to talk about a couple of upcoming interviews, um, talk about the Chadwick Bozeman secrets, and especially the hierarchy of morals and ethics that makes us like people or dislike people, and why. Politics are dividing us like no time before from a, a totally different angle. And we're going to talk about cupcakes because cupcakes are very, very important. And um, two wonderful stories that we'll kind of blitz through and things that have gone away, things that have gone away that uh, many of us grew up with, and some of the dumbest things that humans have ever come up with in the past week. Now, it is a lovely day today. We've had a, a pretty up and down week of, of weather, but some beautiful sunny days. And the news readers here, and I'm sure in the US, their counterparts, would say, Oh, first of September, it's spring, and of course in the Northern Hemisphere, first of September, it's fall or autumn. Well, that is wrong. It's one of the things that really cheeses me off. The vernal equinox here, the spring equinox, is 22nd of September. Not the 1st. And every year they just, you know, it's spring. Because the meteoro- the meteorologists, that's that's just, you know, how they count it. But the actual vernal equinox is the 22nd of September. And the counterpart in the northern hemisphere is the 22nd of September. March. In fact, if you go to Stonehenge, which the Druids built, you know, way before Lagos and Mecano were ever marketed, you know, months before that, the Druids had all the stones perfectly configured so that on March fifteenth and September fifteenth, the sun would be over the stones, And of course, in the winter equinox and the summer equinox, or equinox, as you say, be over the heel stone and tech stone, respectively. So they had it down a zillion years ago. And by the way, pretty amazing, just the last couple weeks, they discovered, finally, using amazing technology, amazing technology, that uh, those stones, which they thought might have been dragged bazillions of miles, they couldn't figure out, really only came from about 15 miles away, max, and most of them possibly within three or four miles. So they didn't travel the long distance that they thought. They thought, how could the Druids do that, you know, with, uh, with what they had to work with? They didn't have slaves. They weren't being canceled. They didn't have slaves. So that's cool to know. And very important to know that uh, many of you would have experienced the gorgeous full moon, On Tuesday night. That was a full moon in Pisces. And there are lots of full moons in the world, but that was a full moon in Pisces, which illuminates. I was born with Pisces' moon in the 12th house, for those of you that are knowledgeable. And all you need to do is try and observe a full moon without bias. Most potent and in play from August 30th till the 3rd of September, yesterday. It opened up new lines of thought, revenue, and romance, and closed off habitual energy saps. So get ready for a lot of vim and vigor and changes in uh, your routine the next couple of weeks. Now, speaking of full moons, which have been around forever... Died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. My firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Well, you now know that that signals that it's time for today in history. And it's true that FDR said you only have to fear, fear itself. He feared dancing classes, I think. He'd be Very embarrassed on the dance floor. But let's go back to 422. In 422, which was the year that Nancy Pelosi was born, St. Boniface I ended his reign as Catholic Pope. Now, when I grew up in Sioux City, Iowa, we had a church named St. Boniface and uh, never really equated what that was all about until right now. In 1781, I skipped a century plus there because, you know, there was really fuck all happening. I looked through it all. In 1781, though, Los Angeles, Los Angeles, Los Angeles is founded by 44 Spanish-speaking mestizos in the Bajea de las Fumas, the Bay of Smokes. And uh, I love L.A. L.A. is very, very good to me. I lived there from 1977 to 1981 and then most of the 85 to 94. Um, Great, great place. Great place. And uh, I'm afraid it's got some problems now, but we'll get into that later. Let's bump ahead to 1833. The first newsboy was hired. His name was Barney Flaherty. He was 10 years old and hired by the New York Sun. That was about three months before fake news started. In 1866, the first Hawaiian daily newspaper was published, and I remember that headline so well. It, I think it said, In 1884, Britain ended its policy of penal, not penile, God, the way some of you people think, penal transportation to New South Wales in Australia. Basically, Britain said, why are we sending prisoners to a better place? Sending them to, you know, Australian beaches and, you know, Bondi Beach and sun and sand. And, uh, you know, uh, Britain, Britain didn't have it. You know, you, you know, rob the store. just robbed the store. You're going you're gonna, to, we're going to send you to, bloody send you to Australia, mate. Well, they figured that out. in 1886, Apache Chief Geronimo surrendered, ending the last major U.S.-Indian War. And I remember when he surrendered, and he said his only settlement that he wanted from the white man was for every time a fat white kid jumps into the swimming pool anywhere, is to yell, Geronimo! In honor to all the Native Americans. And that, though that has pervaded to this day. So I wonder if the cancel culture will be canceling fat kids from jumping into the pool, doing dive bombs, yelling Geronimo. Um, That's probably next. In 1888, George Eastman patented, or patented as they say here, which is silly, patented the first roll film camera and registers the Kodak patent. Now, as an amateur photographer as a child And a pretty damn good photographer As those people that worked on the Central High School Yearbook know And remember And those of you that follow my Instagram Think, eh, it's pretty good Um I love Kodak Kodak was, you know Those yellow boxes of film Just were the goodness And my mom, my late mom Although she was born in New York In Queens, New York Um she did live in Greece, New York, for a number of years, which is a Rochester suburb, and Rochester was all Eastman Kodak. Can you believe Kodak is effectively gone, baby, gone? Unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. Some of the things that are gone, and I was thinking, thinking about that, Today things that are gone, like the Cleveland Browns, the uh, Washington Redskins, Buick, Oldsmobile Actually only one of them is gone But effectively the other has gone Kodak Marks and Spencer's just about to disappear in England Polaroid about to be eliminated off the planet Sad to see all those wonderful brands Just gone baby gone Anyway 1920 Oh and also a friend of mine A good friend of mine Seth McKenna Is from I believe Rochester New York Kodak land So hello out there Ceph. Uh, 1920 man of war that's a horse wins the one and five eighths mile lawrence realization stakes at belmont park by a hundred lengths the largest winning margin in modern thoroughbred racing history world record time two minutes 40.8 a hundred lengths so that's like if you put even you know Bet Midler and Rosie O'Donnell together in the same wheelchair, and had them pedal with Stephen Hawking next to them. Um, They they couldn't do that. They couldn't win by a hundred lengths. You know, it's just that's just ridiculous. 1934, Australian cricket super batsman Don Bradman scores 149 not out in just 104 minutes. That 174 is four sixes in a drawn tour match versus England 11 at Folkestone. Folkestone, as you'll remember from last week, was the first beauty pageant. Down the first beauty pageant. Now I only put this in here because cricket is like chemotherapy. It's it's something that's out there that you can't avoid, and some people just have to endure it. But I know we have a huge amount of fans around the world in countries that have cricket. And that is just to let you know that even though I don't like it, I'm accommodating my listeners out there. And Don Bradman was a legendary Australian cricketer, for those of you that have never watched cricket, would be about 342 million of you in the U.S. Thank you. In 1939, German troops moved into Danzig. Now, I don't think that was the rock band's house, Danzig, but I'm pretty sure the town. I'm going to have to look into that. And, um, and by the way, Danzig is a band that's featured in ridiculously strange movies, um, as usually the serial killer's music of choice. Um, and it's usually on a record, you know, it's analog. The the serial killer, the rapist, the pedophile puts on Danzig really loud in his house alone. Um, while he's, you know, naked in his room in the dark in some horrible town. Um, so I guess, uh, and I think that's been featured in a couple of Stephen King films too, like The Dead Zone. I think, um, I'm going to have to check on that too. The Dead Zone actually my favorite all-time Stephen King film adaptation. Um, David Cronenberg directed Christopher Walken uh, in an early role, Martin Sheen, and um, an amazing film. Great book, amazing adaptation. Even better than The Shining, for my money. Um, Check that out if you haven't seen it. It's probably a bit on the obscure side, but it's um, frighteningly prescient and beautiful. 1944, 2,090 Jews were transported for Westerbork to KZ Lower Theresienstadt. Um, and you notice that almost every week in history, around the 1940s, there's a couple thousand Jews being taken for extermination, which the Germans were very good at. But we don't ask for any reparations. We had 6 million killed in World War II alone. 6 million. 6 million. Think about that. But we're not victims. We don't think, okay, he killed 6 million. We want reparations. But strangely enough, In Sacramento this past week, California lawmakers are setting up a task force to study and make recommendations for reparations to African Americans, particularly the descendants of slaves, as the nation struggles again with civil rights and unrest. The state Senate in California, I had to read this 90 times, I couldn't fucking believe it, supported creating a nine-member commission on a bipartisan 33-3 to vote Saturday. That's how messed up, the state of California has become. The measure returns to the assembly for a final vote before lawmakers adjourn for the year next Monday. Let's be clear. Let's be clear, said Democrat Senator Holly Mitchell of Los Angeles, whose IQ is in single figures. Chattel slavery, both in California and across our nation, birthed a legacy of racial harm and inequity that continues to plague conditions of black lives in California and must be rectified. Well, who else do we have to give money to? I think uh, if that's going to happen, I'm putting my hand up for the Jews to get some money. I'm sure the Romanians and the uh, gypsies want some money. I'm sure the Urgaros want some money. Can we just get over this? It happened 200 years ago, and it was bad. It wasn't initially untoward originally. It's just the way things evolved and it was horrible and it's bad. Do we want saber-toothed tigers to come out of the zoo and give reparations to descendants of fucking cavemen that were killed by saber-toothed tigers? What is going on? Can people just take responsibility that nobody today, nobody, nobody, nobody is responsible for what happened 200 years ago, not even 100 years ago, and in many cases, not even 50 years ago, unless they were alive then In part of it. I am not going to let this one go. I'm not letting this one go. But that's how we just kind of segue from bit to bit in the show, and suddenly we are back to 1957. I was four years old. The Ford Motor Company introduced the Edsel. One of the biggest absolute, you know, goose eggs in in Ford's history, the Edsel. Absolute epic fail. Um, and Ford's pretty good at epic fail, I got to tell you. 1957, the governor of Arkansas, Orville Faubus, called out the National Guard to prevent nine black students from entering a Little Rock Central High School. Hmm. So... When people say, you can't call out the National Guard, it's never been done, it's actually been done 33 times in the last, um, I think, 60 years, and uh, that's one case when it was a bad situation. Now, they're trying to prevent black students from entering Little Rock Central High School. Nowadays, President Trump has to call out the National Guard to prevent, you know, white students wearing Black Lives Matter shirts from burning cities down to the ground. We'll get into that a bit later. 1970, so much happened in history. We are our history. That's why you can't tear the statues down, because then you won't have the history. If you tear everything down, I won't have this section of my podcast. What about in 100 years when people are still listening to this podcast go, wow, there used to be something called, um, oh man, what was it called? God's coming to me, coming to me. History! They used to have something called history. We are a product of our history. I used to love history class in school. They don't teach history. They don't teach social studies. They don't teach anything anymore. They teach gender discrimination. Okay, so 1970. Marxist Salvador Allende wins a narrow plurality of votes in Chile's presidential election. Allende What a wonderful guy. How well is Chile doing today? This podcast, which until last week made no money ever and had no sponsors, um, was more successful than Chile or Venezuela. Marxism. Jesus, give me a break. 1980, a sad day for music. Yes, performed its last concert at Madison Square Garden. They did get back together for a couple of you know, revival tour type things, but that was their original incarnation as a band. I loved Yes. Tales from Topographic Oceans, their live double album, is to me one of the most beautiful live albums ever. I listen to it at least every couple of months. Um, Unbelievable. And if you're a millennial, I'm, I'm still welcoming you to the show, and you don't know who Yes is, You can use Spotify or Apple Music, whatever, and just try out Tales from Topographic Oceans. Yes. And if you love it, you can thank me. And if you don't, music is subjective, but you're a moron. Okay, 1983. California skier. No, you're not a moron. You just have bad taste in music. I have to be nice. I really am nice. You know that. You know that. Uh, 1983. I like this one. California skier Scott Michael Peloton. I don't know if he's related to the Peloton exercise device, but he set the barefoot water ski speed record of 119.36 miles per hour. Whoa! That's fast. Go 119 miles an hour. Um, Let's ask Siri. Hey, Hey, Siri. What's 119 miles per hour in kilometers. The answer is 191.51 kilometers per hour. Thank you. Go back to sleep. Okay. That's 191 kilometers per hour. So do that in your car and, um, it's okay. You can do that. You won't get a ticket. If you say you're a listener to my show, no, no cop will give you a ticket anywhere. They've all been defunded anyway. Um, and then open the car door, have someone hold the wheel for you and take your shoes off. And just imagine getting out of the car at that speed barefoot and video it if you can and then send it to me and I'll put, and I'll post it on the show. I really will. Okay, 1997, Howard Stern, the dean of radio something. I won't say shock jock because it really wasn't a shock jock initially, just a... A smart boy, although I was a Don Imus fan. Howard Stern radio show premiered in Louisville, Kentucky, on WTFX 100.5 FM. I loved Howard Stern forever until he, uh, till he got serious, went on to serious digital radio and um, got Trump derangement syndrome and lost his mind. But his wife, Beth O. Stern, is the coolest person to follow on Instagram because she all she does is rescue cats and people that rescue cats are angels. Um, Wonderful pictures of cats. If you love cats, Beth O. Stern. Got to follow. A a new kitty every day. It's so relaxing. That's one of the first things I do, too, is check my uh, cat Instagram. 1998. This is a longer segment than usual, because so much happened today in history. 1998. Google, which this podcast would be almost impossible without, because of all the searching and information I have to go through to bring this to you from things that I don't know inherently or forgot or have to refresh myself or have to clarify, or I will get corrected by some of you fact checkers out there. Google was formally incorporated by Larry Page and Sergey Brin, two nice Jewish boys at Stanford University, um, before they took over our lives. 2008, The Hurt Locker directed by Catherine Bigelow, one of my favorite films, and starring Jeremy Renner, premiered at the Venice Film Festival, and it won Best Picture in 2010, and proof that a woman can direct a film. I don't know of any others, but I'll look. 2016. This brings us up to the end. Mother Teresa was canonized by Pope Francis, or Pope Frank, as I like to say, um, in a ceremony at the Vatican. Now, I don't know why Dove didn't get Mother Teresa to do ads as the before um, with their moisturizing cream. Um, Because if there was ever a Grand Canyon in a habit, um, it was Mother Teresa. And they could have given her billions, and then she could have used the money to give it to the poor. Well, she could have kept 80% as the Catholic Church does, and she did, and then give the other 20% to the poor and and still be a saint. But um, um, that was a missed marketing opportunity. And that concludes Today in History. By now, most of you or all of you would know that that's the cue, that it's time for science, bitches. And uh, that's the beautiful theremin there. And a shout-out to Tom Schweiger, who not only is an elite fact-tracker of this podcast, thank you for the correction on the rifle that killed JFK. Same result, different project. And, um... Tom sent some nice theremins that uh, I need to buy, including the baby head theremin, which would be a great Christmas present or Hanukkah present for any of you um, looking to impress me and get a shout out on the podcast. But today in science, which is the Atlantic, the Atlantic, which is quite a um, well, at least used to be a reliable um Bastion of Scientific News, an article from James Hamblin. Study science can change the sexual orientations of mice by altering serotonin in their brains. Researchers in China. China. Thank you. Wuhan virus. The things they do there. Researchers in China caused female mice to mount, prefer to mount and sniff the genitals of other female mice. Altering balance. Couldn't pass up this article. Altering balances of testosterone and estrogen has been shown to affect sexuality. And imbalances of the neurotransmitter serotonin can make us hypersexual. In mice, I don't know if they're black mice or white mice, you know, black mice matter, white mice, white white mice matter. In mice, serotonin has been tied to sexual preference. Mice bred without certain neurons have shown no sexual preference. None. They just sit there and read, you know, Playboy or whatever. But scientists have never, quote, unquote, reversed any species' sexual orientation by messing with their genes. Lesbian mice. Freaks me out. Anyway, it's a very long article, and uh, I may go into more of it later. Um, but then traveling into situational gravity from um, Seth Coden. All of us are good at rationalizing. It helps us process the world, navigate our choices, and live with ourselves. We all love a good rationalization. But gravity doesn't care if you got a good night's sleep last night or not. It's still the same amount of force. Gravity don't give a shit. The pavement doesn't care if you always wear a helmet on your bike, except just this one time when you didn't because you were having a video taken. Melanoma doesn't care that you always wear sunscreen. Uh Uh-uh. It don't care. Except that one day when you were really, really, really busy and couldn't go back to the house for it. (sighs) And outside forces don't care about the situation because they have no awareness or memory. They simply are. Newton's law doesn't care that you were really distracted And that's why you weren't wearing a seatbelt And the virus that infected your friend Doesn't care about why that person in the office Decided not to wear a mask either People are very good at stories and rationalization That's our core technology Everything else in the world, though Has no interest in them Or you And speaking of situational gravity, and things that are just what they are, um, a lot of people would have seen Hurricane Laura in uh, Texas, and Louisiana, that uh, just absolutely has created massive havoc. And uh, most of us, myself included, see things like that, and you know we see the video on TV and go, "Wow!" <clears throat> you know, even though I was sitting here in lockdown in Melbourne um, for another two weeks, maybe more, um, till dictator Dan lets us know. He did say yesterday that the virus is evil and it's silent, which was very helpful to know because, you know, if, if I hadn't known that the virus was evil and silent, um, I would have just taken it for granted. So thanks for that information yesterday. That was on his, his morning briefing. I'm serious as, but, um, You see things like, oh, I'm in lockdown and, you know, I can't drive my car very far and, you know, I can't go to the beach and party and uh, my wife and I can't take a holiday and, you know, whatever. But you see Hurricane Laura devastation and um, actually had an email from um, a listener named Sharana, and I won't use the last name just for privacy, that um, lives in Westlake, Louisiana, who um, was one of the epicenters of the Hurricane that um, got annihilated And um, I was I thought it was actually a, a, like a fake Post but um, Is and asked for a shout out So just a shout out and uh, Just send some light and blessing To all those people Out there and I'm, tr- I'm not trying to be a social justice Warrior or anything like that but generally You know when suddenly someone actually That you know but you don't know because I don't know And I've never met this girl and uh, Or lady I don't know how old she is she could be 14 She could be you know 100 Um, is dealing with that, and I'm bitching about not being able to go on holiday. Um, I do believe in the power of prayer, so send a prayer that direction. Anyway, on uh, a lighter note, one thing I am missing in lockdown is movie theaters, because even with my 600-inch giant television, 52 speakers and uh, 4,000 decibels of sound, Um, it's just not enough not being in the cinema. And Tenet, the Christopher Nolan film, Christopher Nolan of, you know, Batman and The Prestige and uh, Insomnia and Inception and so many awesome films. Um, Just, you know, that film's playing everywhere except Victoria, so I can't see it. I actually could get a copy of it if I was that kind of person, but I'm not. Um, I only am not. And, uh ooh, I thought the FBI was listening in. No, the FBI is spying on the Trump campaign. They're trying to erase all of those emails. That's what the FBI does. But, uh, no, I'm just very sad that I can't see that film because I am dying to be in a cinema with other people and see it because I'm imagining it'll be awesome. Which brings me to... The- her section. Doesn't that 20th Century Fox theme just inspire you? Doesn't it just make you just want to see your room go dark and the curtains open? Um, thank you, 20th Century Fox, for that amazing music. Um, So, yes, movies. We kind of talked about Tenet, but we couldn't review it because I haven't seen it. But we are going to talk about Chadwick Boseman, just for a second. And uh, rest in peace, amazing actor. Um, But something that kind of bugs me to speak about, as you know, or maybe you don't know, um, he battled stage three and stage four cancer for like over four years which must be unbelievably horrible, Um, and still did heaps of movies, you know, with that, and never told anybody, which is incredibly brave and selfless and was a, a big champion for kids with cancer and people with cancer. And from what you read and hear from people, one of the nicest people on the planet, one of the hardest working actors, not political at all, and just a real giving person and and family man. Um, and, you know, Black Panther. I can't say that Black Panther was the greatest movie I'd ever seen, but I really liked Black Panther. I saw it at, at Hoyts at Chadston here in, in Melbourne, which is one of the biggest screens in the Southern Hemisphere and relatively new cinema, a fantastic cinema. And, um, you know, saw that, uh, I guess it would have been about two years ago. I think it was, um, yeah, about 2018. And uh, I was, you know, there was like a thousand people. I was the only white guy in the cinema. I am serious this. Uh, this is, you know, he was he racist? No, I'm observational, you idiot. This podcaster judges no one on the color of their skin or how much melanin they have or anything, you know, whether they're yellow, black, brown, whatever. I judge people on their actions and their Enlightenment or moronic stupidity You are judged on your actions Never on on uh, how you look Although all my listeners are ridiculously good looking smart people So I don't have a problem But I go out to Hoyt's And normally I go to lunch with two friends of mine Which we call the boys I'm not going to mention my name They know who they are um, One of them was without power all this week When the, the winds Knocked the power and uh, everything I was out. Was up well for like a day, which is like a week in your life if you don't have power and running water and things like that. Third world country here, um, Melbourne, but um, and the other one's a Collingwood fan, so you know we'll go somewhere else with that. But make like a long story short, I usually go to the boy with the boys to a movie out of Chadston, and then we have lunch, whatever. Well, they weren't. Uh, they weren't in the Black Panther at the time, so I went out and uh, to an eleven thirty a.m. show. And there's like a thousand people there, and they're all black. And I didn't think there was a thousand black people in Melbourne, um, and I stood out. Let me tell you, I stood out, um, and I you know kept checking down. Are they going to steal my sneakers? Uh, no, just kidding, just kidding. It was actually very exciting because it was a real fanboy crowd that knew the character, which I didn't know or anything about it. But um, I try and see every film. And uh, I'm not a huge superhero, Marvel Universe, DC Comics kind of person, whatever. But after suffering through Star Wars movies, I thought maybe maybe this is going to have something. And, of course, the film was epic and fantastic. And Bozeman was, you know, absolutely outstanding. It was a top film. I wouldn't call it the greatest film I'd ever seen. But it was an amazing film and it and it broke a lot of ground, um, especially being a primary black cast um and black directed, you know, superhero movie, you know, two hundred million dollars superhero movie. And I'd seen Bozeman much earlier in forty two um and in Marshall, um, later on too. So, um, just uh, an amazing actor, amazing actor. And just recently, in The Five Bloods, which was his last film that I'd seen. I think there's another one that uh, he has in the can that was directed by Spike Lee, which is a very good film. Spike Lee kind of gives me the shits with his politics sometimes, but Spike Lee is a top filmmaker. If he'd actually stay away from the politics just a little bit and not grandstand, he'd be one of the best filmmakers of our generation. And that's the one thing that kind of keeps him out of the the tippy-top is just taking it that one step too far, in my humble opinion. But um, And actually, my favorite Spike Lee film of all time is Summer of Sam about the uh, Son of Sam uh, killer with Adrian Brody. If you haven't seen Summer of Sam, it's the best Spike Lee film ever made. Also, Inside Man is fantastic also with uh, Jodie Foster and uh christopher Plummer, and um his name just escapes me now but i'll think of it in a minute while i look up google which we know was created on this day in whatever year um clive owen clive owen i knew it had come to me it just came to me into the bathroom uh i had to take a break yes this was an edit i had to take a break i was absolutely busting um it was so much i had to go to the bathroom and then when i was in the bathroom i thought oh Clive Owen, didn't even have to look it up. My memory hasn't failed me. Um, and I'm back whew, and relieved. So n- n- go through this. We do try and go through this thing in, in one go, no pun intended, but uh, sometimes our bodily functions fail us. Um, and in fact, at Black Panther I had to go to the bathroom twice. I remember that. And most Christopher Nolan films I have to go to the bathroom two or three times because they're so long. When you're 67 and you like the 32 ounce Coke and the giant popcorn, it's kind of self defeating because you sit there and I just gobble popcorn, you know, like mad. I love popcorn in the movies, and this was a popcorn movie. And then lots of Diet Coke, which is the only time I ever have Diet Coke. And then suddenly, about 41 minutes of the film, it's like, holy moly, I've I've got to make a move. So anyway, back to Chadwick Boseman. The thing that bothers me, and I hope people take this in context and not the wrong way, is knowing a little bit about Hollywood after all these years and having worked in the industry for a long, long time. There is nothing studios hate more than risk. You think all oh, movie making is a risky situation? Of course, it, of course it is. But movie studios. And financiers do not like to take risk. They make actors sign all kinds of things that they won't go motorbiking and skydiving or even skiing or anything like that. Because if you're doing a $10 million film or a $210 million film and the lead actor breaks his leg or dies, whatever, your your film is fucked. Um, What do you do? You suddenly have to replace an actor right in the middle. So I can't say it bothers me, but it puzzles me how Chadwick Bozeman, who saw pictures towards the end, was very, very ill, you know, stage four colon cancer, you know, looked terrific. He may have hidden it from his fans, and he may have hidden it from most people, but he could not have hidden it from his agent and management. It's just not possible. Um, they would have been meeting with him regularly, and getting the movie deals. Now, I can see him hiding it from the studio because if the studio knew, they wouldn't cast him. Oh, you've got stage three or stage four cancer. You might get sick right in the middle of the shoot and it's going to shut down the whole film, which can cost anywhere from $50,000 per hour to a couple million dollars per day for a shoot to stop. So they're never going to take that risk studios are run by accountants and lawyers and that's just the way they are if you know jesus h christ reappeared and came up to you know the, the studio um with his manager and agent of course now jesus would uh, definitely have the entourage and i mean the real jesus came back and said hey he's back uh the messiah is here and um not the moshiach but the messiah and uh we can do a movie. We, we can do a rebu- reboot of the, the Ten Commandments with uh, the real Jesus, even, you know. And, um, you know, how much is this going to cost? And, you know, Jesus being Jesus would even say, oh, you know, no money. Just give it to the poor. They go, well, what? Are, I don't know. It's going to have a problem. Look at your hands. Look at those nail holes in there. Um, uh, that's, that's not a good look. And, of course, when you put your hands out of the car window, you know, they're going to whistle. You know, okay. Can't have that whistling Jesus thing. No, no, too risky, too risky. So uh, I know you're the real Jesus, but uh, we just, uh, we, we'd rather have a stand in Jesus. We can't have it. So how did he get it past his agent and manager? Or how does his agent and manager not let the studio know? I think there had to be almost a duty of care there. I, I don't know. I'm completely puzzled on it. I don't see it as any diabolical conspiracy. And if I was, you know, Tedwick Bozeman, I would do everything I can to get cast and you know, work hard and earn money for my family and stuff like that. I don't fault him at all. I'm just curious what the fallout's going to be with that management and that agent for future films with studios when they chat with those people who would represent many, many other actors, uh, of which I have a list which I, I'm not going to share, but there's a, a lot of people there that I, if I was the head of the studios thinking, oh, you represent, you know, Actress A, Actress B, how are they feeling? And don't they have to take a physical before each film? Um, that's general, general uh, method of operation. Anyway, that puzzles me a lot. I'm curious. Maybe something will come out about it. Maybe uh, it's a huge conspiracy theory that I just thought of in the shower the other morning. Or maybe it's just a piece of genius that flew out that you heard here first so moving right away from movies and cancer to cupcakes cupcakes in the post office which has been in the news in the u.s of late and uh i'm taking from an article in the age from tony wright um who's a fantastic writer has a great column i don't read the age much anymore um they did a fantastic half page interview on me many many years ago and i love them and I know they're preparing to do like a, a full-page, maybe a two-page spread on me and my podcast one of these days, so uh, I, I still stay nice to them. And I do like their entertainment section and, and weekend. They do have a great entertainment section. But anyway, Tony writes um, a solid genius there. Anyway, in praise of cupcakes in the post office, cupcakes, as everyone knows, serve a single noble purpose. They lift the spirits. So he was talking about one of his daughters, living in country Victoria, out in the sticks, had baked a batch of cupcakes, and she thought of her sister and baby niece locked away in somber, curfewed Melbourne, here where we're in lockdown, frosting her creations with swirls of chocolate icing. His daughter set to thinking about how she could have one of those mood-enhancing dainties delivered to her sister and baby hunkered around the ring of steel, that is Victoria's capital city these days. So carefully snugging a cake into a little plastic container, she raced to the local post office, which is a big thing out in the bush. And she hurried to the local post office, hoping to catch the afternoon mail. One of the post office assistants spied his daughter hunting for the most suitable packaging and offered to help. Very helpful here at the post offices. When she learned the nature of the mission, a cupcake for a sister and baby in far away, forbidding Melbourne, she alerted the whole staff who, caught by the mood, sprang into action. There was a skirt of packing and a screech of adhesive taping, and one of the assistants was dispatched to hold the mail truck. Stop! lest it leave for Melbourne without the celebrated confection. Well, the little offering made it to Melbourne overnight and was delivered fresh to face-timed squeals of pleasure from a baby who had never tasted chocolate frosting. It was a small triumph of goodwill and good-hearted service from the staff of a country post office who had the imagination to recognize that anyone locked up in Melbourne, thanks Dan, thanks China, right now needed cheering up. I just love that story the po- the post office as he sure doesn't crop up in many conversations and if it does it's usually someone bitching or moaning about slow delivery of documents you know or the cost of posting a parcel or in the case of us some of our online orders that we've tracked from England and the US that we see have sat here somewhere at the airport or at customs while people are trying on our clothes and shooting selfies and we're waiting to be delivered although our postie here Cam is absolutely the best absolutely the best anyway just a little bit of history every village and town in australia traces its right to be recognized as a place on the map to the day a post office was established there and in fact, it meant that even the most reno- it meant that my speech therapy seminar which will be beginning tomorrow it meant that even the most remote outpost was linked to everywhere else as a side benefit it persuaded many to elevate reading and writing to such a desirable goal that Australia was among the first nations to embrace free, compulsory, and secular education. Victoria went first with this Education Act of 1872. Now we've got some of the dumbest, most uneducated people on the planet, but uh, it was great back in 1872. The male previously had been subject to theft, fraud, in the occasional riot when it arrived from Britain. But Isaac Nichols, an emancipated convict, was named Australia's first postmaster in 1809, and he got set to taking charge of securing the mail on board arriving ships and then distributing it from home. Melbourne got his first post office in 1837, and only two years later, after John Batman, that really was his name, We have an avenue named Batman Avenue. Batman, the Batman. And John Faulkner arrived separately and began parceling out land that had belonged to the Kulin people for just about forever. In fact, Australia's indigenous people had long established their own form of mail, as it happens. Message sticks were carried between clans, language groups and nations clear across the continent, providing the bearer of messages a form of diplomatic immunity the ancient greek historian tony goes on to share herodotus offered poetic evidence of what is thought to be the first really swift postal service he described a scheme in ancient persia where riders conveyed mail on horseback swapping exhausted horses at posts and carrying on at constant gallop the post actually comes from the latin ponere meaning to place referring to the placing or posting of the riders along the postal route. Now, in the U.S., our famous are, because I hail from the U.S., even though I'm proudly dual citizen and proudly Australian, for those of you that are new to this podcast. And if you are new, you've got to go back and listen to them all. And you please need to subscribe or at least go to the show notes, which are, once again, at blueberry. .net and blueberry is b l u b r r y the way it is . b l u b r r y there's so many groovy cool things on each week's show notes and you can subscribe for free and uh, win a car no just kidding um everyone gets a car but when the us established its famed postal service the original quote of it is said that as many days as there are in the whole journey so many Are the men and horses that stand along the road, each horse and man at the interval of a day's journey, and these are stayed neither by snow nor rain, nor heat nor darkness, from accomplishing their appointed course with all speed. Now, the proud but unofficial motto of mailman when I was growing up then was neither rain nor sleet nor Gloom of night stays these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. There you go. And of course, in the U.S. right now, there's a lot of controversy, where I will digress from Mr. Wright about the post office, where uh, the Postmaster General, if you look at his recent interviews, um, there's nothing happening to defund the post office or keep mail from being delivered. Um, for the upcoming election. In fact, um, I just have to share as we segue in into that uh, from that fantastic article because what could be better than a cupcake arriving at your house unexpected. I wish somebody would send me cupcakes. Absolutely. wish that. And the king of Elwood, the king of Elwood, I know, has sent cakes or received cakes by mail. Um, I think he sent his wife cakes on their anniversary. If I remember from Instagram, hasn't sent me any cakes. Thanks, Sam. Um, but he will. He owes me a lunch if we ever get out of here. But speaking of the mail and speaking of, you know, each week we have our special award, our absolutely wondrous award for, you know, the worst possible person being the most horrific as they can. And again, it goes to, oh, not Nancy Pelosi, but Hillary Clinton, who told Joe Biden, whatever happens in the election, if you lose, don't don't concede no matter what. Well, that's giving the most illegal advice because speaking of the post office, just a couple of facts here, just a couple of facts for all the conspiracy theorists that think that the election is going to be fixed, the U.S. election. The U.S. election is November 3rd. That cannot be changed except by law, so that's never going to change, okay? No Trump is not going to delay the election. The coronavirus won't delay the election. That won't change. On December 14th, the electors get together and they have to select their elected president. So two dates that are never gonna change. November 3rd is the election. December 14th, the electoral college gets together and makes their selections. Those will never change. And on January 20th, the new president is sworn in. Those will never change. That is law. Those, those laws will never change. So what Hillary Clinton has asked Joe Biden to do is not to concede and to con- contest constitutional law, which which cannot change. Now, they can take a long time. They can take up to, you know, from November 3rd to December 14th. They can dispute it for about six weeks till everything's counted. But then the Electoral College has to make their decision. And yes, ballots can come in late from the post office. Uh, but if they are postmarked, postmarked before the due date in each state, and there are 50 states, so each one has a slightly different rule, but if it's postmarked, doesn't matter if it gets delayed in the mail, gets delayed four weeks, so comes in with the postmark, that vote will be counted. So all this conspiracy theory, ridiculousness, get it out of your heads. Okay. Get it out of your heads. And as far as Hillary, um, typical loser Barking in the woods with you know, a bottle of maybe a gallon of Sauve Blanc. Walking in the woods as she said she did after the election. I don't think she's come back out of the woods yet. So um, let's 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 all move forward here. It could be a very close election. Um, it could be a slightly contested election. But those dates are fixed and are not going to change. We will have a president out of the election. It could be Donald Trump. It could be Joe Biden. And um, all I can say is, a lot of people who feared President Trump being elected now fear him not being re-elected. Um, which brings us to the conventions. This, which I'm really going to touch on, this isn't a Politico podcast. Just a quick recap: the Democrats had Billie Eilish out of her basement, um, a great artist, but looked like a typical millennial that lives with her parents. And um, it had Elaine, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, doing a horrible shtick. And it had Michelle, no, and they go low, we go high, going as low as you can, calling out the worst of the Republicans. And it had Barack Obama calling out the worst. And it had Joe Biden barely reading from a teleprompter. And of course, the swooning left, thinking it was the greatest speech ever. He could barely keep up with the teleprompter. Um, But there were elements of his speech that I liked a lot about love and trust. Love and trust. So uh, I thought the, it was possibly one of the worst conventions and it had to be on Zoom and everything like that. But it was nothing but just absolutely denigrating the Republicans. And yes, I'm going to talk about the other way because it goes both ways. And not saying anything about China, our biggest enemy in the world right now that has just fucked the world with the Wu flu. And not saying anything, not one thing, about the riots in the streets that are all in democratic controlled cities. Now, all I can say is this. And this is for democrats and republicans alike. Everyone's welcome on this show. It's all it's a love show. Nobody sane likes riots. Okay? Four words. Nobody sane likes riots. Nobody Nobody likes burning and looting and killing and stuff like that. Not Democrats, not Republicans. Nobody's sane. Not even far left. Side. Nobody's sane like that. So if they're not saying anything about the riots, if they're condoning those, they are not sane. They are insane and unfit to run the country. Do you like riots? Do you want to be raped and murdered and have your house burned down and your store destroyed? No. Those are insane, moronic people doing that. Now... Move over to the Republican National Convention, which also had its share of quid pro quo, slamming everything about the Democrats. You know, they can go low, you know, the Demo- the Republicans can go low too. But it had some beautiful speeches, not from celebrities, but from the lovely woman whose husband, the St. Louis cop, was shot in a riot. From the McCloskeys, whose house and their whole... Um, sector of, of, of homes there was attacked by Black Lives Matter, you know, mobs. These are not protesters, mobs that were there to kill them if they didn't have weapons to protect themselves. Um, and uh, it's just real people. It wasn't celebrities. What I loved about the Republican National Convention was just real people telling stories. They love their family. They love their business. They just want to have lower taxes and get on with life. And and not worry about riots and burning. Um, and then there were some ridiculous speeches from some of the Republicans too. And everyone said Trump's speech was horrible. Well, his speech was too long. It was 70 minutes. It was way too long. However, they said it was uninspiring. It was outdoors in the White House Rose Garden, outside, an, an amphitheater. And I know from people that attended it, I don't know them personally, but from their Responses. It was epic to be there. It was electric. It's not like being in a studio reading a teleprompter to one person. He was there with a thousand people in the Rose Garden, and I and I understand that. And um, wife Melania's speech was very stirring to be there. So they both went low. They both, you know, said they were going high. But when it came down to it, take away all this stuff about character and and whatever. Um, do you want peace and prosperity? Or do you want chaos and insanity? That's what it comes down to. That's that's my quick quick takeaway on it. And that's really all the time I want to spend on it. I really don't want to spend any more time on politics until towards the election. I'd rather go into the past. So, you finally arrived. What the hell are you wearing? It's my ass kicking outfit, bitch! Well, it doesn't look like I'll be going into the past right now, but I am going to go in the past for some fashion because I'm wearing nothing really, really exciting. Everything's a bit nondescript today. But this morning, my wife was trying on some of her clothes as if we were going to go out, which we're not, and she had on an amazing. Peter Palato dress. This one's for the ladies today. And Peter Palato, if you um, know your labels, that was the designer behind Princess Eugenie's royal wedding dress a couple of years ago. And now is the talk of London Fashion Week. And Peter Pilato is actually two people, not one. The brand is named after Peter Palato. The label is actually headed up by Two designers, not one, by a Christian Devoe or De Vos. I'm not quite sure how they pronounce that. Um, who met at uh, the Royal Academy of Fine Arts in Antwerp, Belgium. Palato is Austrian Italian, while partner Devoe or De Vos hails from Belgium and Peru. And they're they're known for their sharp prints and their amazing silhouette. And my wife has an amazing silhouette. Um, She's very lucky I'm very lucky We're both very lucky And Peter Pilato is very lucky Because he sold her a dress When we were in London a couple years ago And uh, it wasn't as good as going to London And staying at Claridge's and having lunch But it was pretty good to see her In that dress And uh, it's on the show notes Because your podcaster Just couldn't be bothered today I know, I know It's gotten to me Lost my Lost my sartorial inspiration for this morning. Daniel Andrews' lockdown has made me fashion and hedonic for the week. But uh, I'm going to try and get over that. Something I'd like to share with you, a couple weeks ago I talked about the Michael Mann film Heat in Val Kilmer. Big Michael Mann fan. And um, in Variety, um, a while back there was a beautiful interview with michael mann talking about uh, making the greatest the uh, man behind the movie the uh, muhammad ali homage with will smith and that uh, <clears throat> rumble in the jungle was this week in 1974 as you might know um and uh, sharing that michael mann had said that one of muhammad ali's and, and i was a big fan of muhammad ali um, i was a big fan of cassius clay i loved boxing growing up my dad loved boxing and uh, When uh, Ali changed his name from Cassius Clay to Ali, it didn't seem like a big thing. And I couldn't see why they put him in jail and everything like that. And um, it just didn't seem to make sense. And Islam back then had a different commentation. I'm growing up in Sioux City than it does now in a world stage, a little bit sheltered. But uh, as, as Michael mentioned, one of Muhammad Ali's biggest struggles culminated in 1974's Rumble in the Jungle where it seemed that the spirit of the progressive forces in the world was about to battle the spirit of the repressive status quo, which has so much meaning today, here we go, 36 years later. Early on, Cassius Clay related to the wider world. His father was interested in Marcus Garvey and Pan-Africanism. Cassius started reading Muhammad Speaks in 1959, and in the early 60s, the front page may have featured the opening of a Nation of Islam haberdashery on 64th Street in Chicago, but buried in the middle pages were national liberation struggles in the Third World, Patrice Lumumba in the Congo, gleaming new public housing in the Kurumas, Ghana. Then, when Cassius Clay began, became world champion and changed his religion and declared himself free of every Jim Crow assumption and expectation, including his quote-unquote slave name, I had to prove I could be a new kind of black man. I had to show that to the world and began the biggest fight of his life. He outraged everyone from white racists, white moderates, and mainstream media to Roy Wilkins of the NAACP and Joe Lewis. Ollie knew he bore the burden of symbolic representation to black America. He embraced it. He would build a motivational figure made of life itself his life, and it cost him. Denouncing the war and refusing the draft cost Ali, in addition to millions and millions of dollars, the revocation of his boxing licenses and a fighter's prime years. What's sad is in a way we may never, ever have seen the best of Ali. It would have occurred between the ages of 25 to 29. In 1974, both of his struggles reached their zenith in Kinshasa. The rumble in the jungle polarized the world. I'll never forget it. Ali, the angry jokester, the genius athlete who spoke truth to power, inspired everyone from John Carlos and Tommy Smith through the anti-war movement to Nelson Mandela. He was the spirit king, but the spirit king of peaceful protest, the inspiration for black, brown, poor, anyone rising up from below in Latin America, Africa, Asia, and the U.S. Foreman personified, involuntarily, of course, the status quo, the moderate establishment devoted to order, not to justice. Quote, who paternalistically feel that they can set the timetable for another man's freedom, Martin Luther King Jr., that they can determine when people held down are allowed to arise from the abyss. Now, in Mozambique, in Mavamali, which is a, faz- a favela, uh, a slum outside of Maputo. Michael Mann was shooting a scene in Ali, in which Will Smith was running through alleyways and dusty streets with packs of local kids. After he cut, the crowd didn't. They picked up Will Smith and carried him away on their shoulders, shouting Ali Bumaye, which is Ali, kill him, Ali, kill him. To them, they weren't carrying Will Smith, they were carrying Ali. They had literally no idea who Will Smith was. There's no movie theaters in Mozambique. They'd never seen Men in Black or Independence Day, but they knew their hero, Muhammad Ali. Everyone on the planet knew Muhammad Ali. In his prime, he fought with the speed and agility of a welterweight, but hit as a heavyweight. He threw punches 25% faster than Sugar Ray Robinson, but he weighed 50 pounds more, and they landed with a 1,000 foot-pounds of force. In the ring with him, the shuffle bewildered you. You couldn't tell if the left or the right would come at you first. Combined with a flurry of head-and-shoulder feints, snapped lightning jabs to confuse your vision. The result was disorienting. And then came the right hand give up, lie down. Genius is genius. Whether it's Einstein or Ayrton Senna or Michael Jordan, it's conceiving what's never been done before. In the blistering ring pounded by Foreman, Ali, now well past his prime, was deep into the rope-a-dope. Pounded by Foreman, he slipped many of the punches or angled away from their major impact. But more than a few times, he compelled himself with sheer will not to sink into that comfortable green room of unconsciousness. He'd rather die than lose because he was a fighter because of what it meant to the whole world watching. When Michael Mann made Ali, Will Smith dedicated a year to become Ali. No director ever had a better, more stand-up partner. In the early days, in one of his meetings with Ali, he said that one of the most important concerns with him was there would be no idolatry, no sugarcoating, He made mistakes, and he wanted all of them included. His life was his life, and he was proud of the totality of it and didn't want it diminished by hagiography. That was when the serious depth and character of the man first opened up to him. It led Michael Mann to ask what mistake he most regretted, and Ali answered, it was his rejection of Malcolm X. Malcolm had been expelled from the Nation of Islam and Ali had been convinced by Elijah Muhammad to renounce his friend and mentor. Earlier, Malcolm had planned their joint trip to Africa, Ali's first. Then came the schism. But, as it happened, traveling separately, their paths crossed. Malcolm was leaving the Ambassador Hotel in Accra with Maya Angelou, as Ali's party with Howard Bingham was arriving. Malcolm was thrilled to run into him. Ali coldly turned his back. As they parted, it never occurred to Ali that he would never see him again. Malcolm was assassinated in the Audubon ballroom shortly afterwards. Atala Shabazz, Malcolm's eldest daughter, worked with Michael Mann on the film. During one of the visits, he asked Ali if he wanted to meet her. It was eerie because she so resembled Malcolm. It was as if Malcolm X was in the room. They met. Ali told her he loved her father and how much he regretted never being able to make things right between them, and they talked for a long time. Against the tide of conventions, Ali had said, I get to be who I want to be, not who you want me to be. It's Michael Mann closed, Ali was one of the bravest men he ever met wow what a story can you imagine if muhammad ali had twitter today that'd be a whole different thing thanks for indulging me i know this has been a long one and uh before i close just want to share a couple things going on that uh that i'm doing right now i'd like to give a great shout out to all the fathers that are having father's day this coming sunday and also to the amazing guys at pantry brighton who um have a special offer on and uh, donating all the proceeds to charity to Beyond Blue for um, all the men and dads that are doing it tough. And uh, Marshall White is matching them on that. So check their Instagram. Uh, very generous. And a nice shout out to our uh, mates at Nike and uh, customer service guy, Rich, who uh, sorted a small problem. And uh, a shout out to Tyrrell's Chips, um, only by the English ones. The Aussie ones just aren't up to scratch. And um, we're boycotting those. We tried. We tried to help them. They wouldn't do it. And, of course, none of this is uh, commercial. And all these little shout-outs are just thank-yous or no thank-yous uh, to people. There's no commercial consideration there. And I'm actually rereading. I'm reading quite a few books. And I finished the Oliver Stone book. And i have starting to reread for, like, the eighth time, Appointment in Samara, which was... The great American writer John O'Hara, who published it in 1934, and it concerns the self destruction of the fictional character Julian English, who was a wealthy car dealer who was once a member of the social elite. And Appointment in Samara was retold by W. Somerset Maugham, 1933. And if I can just close with a powerful little anecdote The speaker is death. I am death speaking. There was a merchant in Baghdad who sent his servant to market to buy provisions, and in a little while the servant came back, white and trembling, and said, Master, just now when I was in the marketplace I was jostled by a woman in the crowd, and when I turned I saw it was death that jostled me. She looked at me and made a threatening gesture. Now, lend me your horse, and I will ride away from this city and avoid my fate. I will go to Samara, and there death will not find me. The merchant lent him his horse, the servant mounted it, and he dug in his spurs and his flanks, and as fast as the horse could gallop he went. Then the merchant went down to the marketplace, and he saw me standing in the crowd. And he came to me and said why did you make a threatening gesture to my servant when you saw him this morning that was not a threatening gesture i said it was only the start of surprise i was astonished to see him in baghdad today for i had an appointment with him tonight in samara i too have an appointment with destiny an appointment with you all next Friday at the same time. Have a great week. God bless. Thanks so much.